shove them in. Yep. If you could just avoid using the phrase shove Craig in here, <laughs> that would at all. I mean, there's no ever. real eloquent way. Well, I mean, I could just say, let's put Craig in the room. But, you know, that's almost as bad. I was going to say, like, we could invite Craig in, but Jesus, that makes him sound like some sort of creepy vampire. Nobody puts Craig in the corner except for me because that's what I do. Can you um, imagine how much worse Let It In would have been if it were Craig instead of, like, I don't know, like a small Swedish boy? Yeah, no, that would be extra creepy. Um, mm-hmm. It only goes downhill. Yeah, it just goes worse and worse. My friends, what lays before you is the myriad knowledge of an unfathomable universe. Join our intrepid remembrancers as they explore the heresy as history. From deep within the farthest reaches of the great library of Tiska, we are the Heresy Grad School. So said the War Master in his wisdom. Go forth my sons, and illuminate them. Well, uh, welcome back, everybody, to a, another fun-filled episode of Heresy Grad School, uh, where uh, we talk about heresy as a history. Um, and we're starting back into it, or we're back into our Xana coverage, part two. Um, super exciting. I think... Uh, I know I'm I'm excited about covering Xana. I know Jason and Dave are excited about it. And it seems like you guys are too, judging by how well the first episode was received. So we're going to keep on going. We're going to keep on trucking. So I think we're starting out with some uh, a little bit of housekeeping, right, Dave? Yeah, I, I definitely want to clear a couple things up. So in the last episode, I said uh, that um, the kickoff for the horse heresy was in m or was in 003 m31 which is a little off so istvan 3 actually happens in 005 m31 and then istvan 5 the drop site massacre happens in 007 m31 and which is the same year that xana uh, is declared a uh, traitorous perdita and so the Xana incursion doesn't actually happen until 009 M31. So there's a lot going on here, right? Um, the sort of the the message that comes back from Istvan Five um, and Dorn, basically. So Dorn is the region on. Well, he's not the region, but he's the you know, sort of the in charge of the defense of Terra, the throne world in the aftermath of, of Istvan. Um, so he is the authority by which Xana uh, is declared traitor Perdita. Um, obviously, Malkador is behind that as well, but, uh, but, but Rogaldorn is sort of the, the, the voice, the mouthpiece of the emperor in terms of the defense of the galaxy after um both uh istvan tragedies so so i wanted to clear that up a little bit because the the timeline does become even more compressed and it's sort of even more interesting i think in terms of um how this comes about so um that's really the housekeeping that i had pat um do you guys have anything um 
I know I don't have anything, but I think we're uh, we're just gonna go right into this uh, next part. I think we're starting at uh, the beacon on the shore of night, right, Dave? Yeah. So this is page sixty, um, the beacon on the shore of night. This is lesson two, and it will take us from page sixty, the beacon on the shore of night, up to page sixty-two, the feathered messenger. So, alrighty, bye. let's get into it. The Zana incursion. Death has reared himself a throne in a strange city lying alone. Hell, rising from a thousand thrones, shall do it reverence. Unknown poetic fragments collected in the Lexus Dramaturica, Saga M2. Part 2 The Beacon on the Shore of Night. Alright, guys. Uh, like they said, whip on out your book six, flip it to page 60, and check out the Zana Paradox. So at the top there is that terrific little quote that we uh, had at the beginning of our series. Dave's a huge fan of that. I'm a big fan of that. Uh, pretty great choice to start us out. Uh, so let's talk about the beacon on the shore of night. Zana is an interesting forge world. We've gone through a whole lot of forge worlds um, throughout the show already, but this is one of my favorites, because not only is it one of the most powerful trader forge worlds, it's also kind of an enigma to the you know, Imperium at large, and I am nothing if not a sucker for like a good mystery, and it makes it a little more fascinating for me. So it's not a forge world like uh, Lucius or, uh, oh gosh, what's that little, um, that little hillbilly forge world? Uh, Calibrax. Like, I think that was the one where knights were basically reduced to running on diesel fuel with stone spears. Correct me if I'm wrong. But um, So it's not a tiny forge world way out on the fringe that's barely holding together. It's not a giant you know, template-constructed, arc-created domain, which has kind of maintained ties and communications with Mars throughout the length of the Old Night, uh, like something like Lucius. Uh, Zana is called the Zana Paradox because it completely fascinated and completely befuddled uh, the Magi of Mars. So to explain this a little bit, uh, Zana has been around for a long, long time, into and even a little before the 800s of M30. So we're talking Great Crusade or even earlier. Now, starting out, Zana was something, it was like a myth. Uh, there were plenty of contradictory and really over-the-top exaggerated stories about it, uh, ranging in huge things from like machine empires that span dozens of worlds. And on the other hand, completely in the opposite direction, it was described by others as this lonely, tiny outpost on the very edge of known charted controlled space. Uh, some versions of their stories told of like, you know, ravening cyborg lords who uh, ruled over a forge fane twice the size of Mars. And others um, tell of like these crazy cabals of like fleshless, dark overminds that had programmed themselves into their automata. 
and they should have been centuries dead. So it's a really creepy start. And I think that makes the story all the more interesting because the only consistency in these stories, no matter what the iteration, what the technological power was, uh, whether it was human, whether any other detail uh, came to the light, it was always said it was on a star system on the very western fringes of the galactic reach, and it was always named Zana. So starting off in the early decades, as the Great Crusade was just getting rolling, uh, it was something that even the Fabricator General of Mars and the Emperor himself wanted to figure out and locked in. So to the Fabricator General, I mean, if this was true, if there was a forge world out there as powerful as Mars, that's something that needs to be locked down. That's something that needed to be, um, you know, obtained, studied, not only as a way to increase their own interior power. Uh, if you guys remember back to our coverage on Nighthouses, it was almost like this leapfrog game between uh, the uh, kind of uneasy alliance between Mars and the uh, kind of nascent up-and-coming Imperium, where they were trying to lock in these Forge Worlds and have them pledge to a specific, you know, either to the Emperor or to uh, the Forge Fanes of Mars as quickly and as solidly as possible. So Zana is something that would be absolute top on these list of priorities uh, for these uh, for these two sides of the burgeoning Imperium to get done. So it's not known exactly what the Emperor's interest in this is specifically, but there's plenty of, you know, kind of speculation. And Although they, um, it's well documented that probe ships were sent out into the region uh, in the dozens by the Emperor's express order, it's not entirely known what the deal was. So it could have been just a part of the Emperor's idea to see the farthest flung domains, you know, kind of pulled back into the fold of humanity. Uh, it could have been as a potential rival. Uh, he doesn't know at this point. Uh, even when the Great Crusade is getting started, the alliance with Mars is not that solid uh, compared to, I don't know, it's never really solid throughout the length and breadth of the uh, history of 30 and 40K, but it's pretty fresh. Uh, this could be something the Emperor sees as a potential rival. Uh, if Mars suddenly doubled its size, capacity, you know, material and war strength, that could be a massive problem for the Emperor starting out. They may start to see that uh, Treaty of Olympus is a little less enforceable and a little more shaky. Uh, another bit of speculation is it could have even been a potential location where one of the lost Primarchs could have been found, uh, All which is, it's just a throwaway single sentence in here, but that's a pretty huge deal. Again, the Great Crusade's just getting started. We've only got a few Primarchs back in hand. Um, so even after decades and decades of searching for Zana, uh, 
probes for both the side of the Emperor and Mars come back uh, either not at all or in completely empty-handed, uh, save for more rumors, more superstitions, and the myth of Zana just kind of remaining a myth. And once the Great Crusade gets underway, it's something that they neither Mars nor the Imperium has that many resources to be able to throw at. So this is why it's kind of remains in the background until 843 M30. So there is a rogue trader, uh, Casalita de Anasi, who, uh, when her ship is thrown off course after engaging in a battle with Thrall Corsairs, she actually runs into a trio of massive automata warships, basically at the edge of charted space in the western fringes. Now, even one of these things probably could have taken or destroyed her already, you know, damaged and depleted ship with minimal effort. Instead, they broadcast these very, like, personable messages uh, telling the uh, rogue trader that they will offer aid, and uh, they carry a message of greeting and an offer of diplomatic exchange between, quote, the sovereign forge domain of Zana and the Imperium of Mankind and its ruling emperor. So completely uh, out of prospect for them, the Zana vessels uh, tow the damaged Gallius to the forge world uh, into the Zana system. They prepare it, they resupply it, uh, they restock it for its journey home, like high Q, you know, priority-wise. And the rogue trader herself uh, describes it as a beacon on the shore of night. It's a fully-fledged forge world as potent as any then in the Imperium, save Mars itself. And it's set in orbit around a massive gas giant, uh, beholden to a star cast alone on the edge of the Great Void without constellation or neighbor for hundreds of light years. Uh, it's described... A world, if any, could be said to be so on the precipice of the abyss of the unknown. Now, uh, one thing Dave and I both wanted to chat about here, I'm going to turn it over to Dave for a little bit on the Feral Corsairs, because that's probably something you guys have heard about before, but don't have as many details on. So, Dave. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Thanks for that, uh, that, that really good um, reading and insight. Um, sort of into where we are here uh, with with the uh, discovery of Xana. So this road trader um, was wounded in an action with the Frawl. And the Frawl have been around for a while, right? So they were they were first sort of discussed and talked about back in the days of Battlefleet Gothic. And uh, you can find them in the main rule book. Um, page 86 and then 96 to 97. Um, there's some discussion of them, but this is again, like where I think the, 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 just the wonderful lore of the black books and the, and the way that it connects all the dots with the 41st millennium. And then all the way back into the, you know, the, the great crusade and the Horus heresy. So rather than, 
invent an alien race, right? Rather than invent a Xenos species that poses threat to the Imperium, um, Forge World and and sort of the Black Books take the Frawl um, and just give them greater agency and greater potency. Um, and the Frawl are actually in almost all of the Black Books that we know about. So they're in Book 1, Betrayal, Book 2, Massacre. Um, they feature in Book six here retribution which we're which we're discussing and then also in book seven in inferno um so they are sort of this um massively psychic uh race that enslaves humanity and is able to use them as sort of puppets uh for their you know smuggling trade and and sort of um as proxies, you know, for their for their empire, but they do exist sort of beyond the borders of what we would think of of the um, you know the galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. And so, I think that's really interesting that that they were put in here um, in uh, in book six. So it's definitely a way to um, fill in the blanks and sort of give more background um, into the few Xeno species that we, that we really, that we really know about. Um, and so one of the things I want to point out is uh, book two on page 153, we've got this beautiful full color plate of a word bearers contempted red knot. Uh, he is Edukar of the Anunnaki. Um, he's attached to the Serrated Sun chapter, which you guys should definitely know about. And it says that before his induction into the Anake or the Anunnaki, the Colchisium term meaning princely sons or judges of hell, and used within the word bearers legion to denote those legionaries granted the honor of continuing their service within the armored shell of a dreadnought, Edukar was widely lauded in Imperial battle group records for his heroism during the Serapis compliance against the monstrous Frawl. As a result of irreparable wounds taken during the battles there, he was interred into a dreadnought frame. So we've got some great rabbit holes there. Um, we know the Serapis campaign was a, a campaign on the edges of the uh, Segmentum um, Pacificus, I believe. I'll have to go back and look at that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it, was, it was undertaken by the word bearers and the salamanders. Um, and so uh, the Frawl featured widely in the sort of the... Uh, exploration of the galaxy during the great crusade and then sort of compliance and um xenocidal actions which really are just sort of where we're going with all this so yeah the frawler it's a it's a great sort of shout out to um the grimdark and the 41st millennium that we we know and love so yeah jason back to you man Thank you, Dave. I appreciate that. So, looking on down a little farther, 
on page 60. So let's talk about an uneasy alliance. So, Zaha has decided to kind of reach out at this point. Uh, they have prepped this rogue trader for her journey back across the galaxy and shoo her off back to Terra uh, with this message that they would like to uh, extend greetings to the Imperium of Mankind and its Emperor. And now that they have opened communications, of course, there are going to be dignitaries going both directions. Uh, there's going to be massive, massive interest from Mars and, of course, from the Emperor. So this outreach is almost immediately set, uh, set upon by suspicions from the Imperium. Uh, and unfortunately, the first and foremost of these are actually dignitaries from Mars. Uh, it's a really troubling prospect to them and why they're basically the camp that, you know, came up with coining the Zana paradox. Because it's a very recognizable Mechanicum-based forge world. It's almost as large as Mars. It's built in the exact same style with the exact same Mechanicum-centric dogma. It is very obviously originated from Martian templates. And it should not exist there. There is no creation uh, records. There are no histories uh, of any sort of arc or template fleet being sent there. It's not a tiny outpost like um, we talked about earlier, Calibrax, that has just been rediscovered. It's not an arc-created domain that had maintained contacts uh, with Mars. Just a very cursory examination shows it's this massive primary forge of uh, resource and manufacturing ability that completely outstrips its own needs. Its roots must be centuries deep, if not more. So much so that its uh, expansion has dragged other planetary bodies into its own orbit for use on its homeworld's forges. Uh, its technologies have produced independent forge veins in exactly the same style as Mars, which are self-sufficient, each one of which has created like powerful cohorts of automata. They've created Tagmata for their own protection. And in the defense of the world, uh, they have pooled their resources to create a Titan Legion of a size matching the first rank of the, um, of the Imperium's own classification which would be a Primaris-grade Titan Legio, just as big as something like Legio Mortis, which is one of, well, besides um, Legio Destructor, the Steel Beasts, it's one of the largest Titan Legios in existence, and Zana has created one on par with that. So that is no small feat, and it really makes the Martian Forge Lords uncomfortable because this, this Forge world shouldn't even exist in their records, much less come close to, if not matching Mars in power, at least threatening to match Mars in power. 
Um, so as well, Zana has its own Void Navy, uh, vessels with easy warp capability. And even though the emissaries from Mars are being accepted into the Synod of Zana, with this sort of cool, detached, you know, uh, cordial honor, uh, none of this is making sense, and it's making the Lords of Mars more and more uncomfortable. So, Zana, it's too far out on the reaches, it's too well-established, it's much too powerful, and it's too similar to other Mechanicum doctrines. It's too perfectly in line with the teachings of the machine cult for a world that has no history whatsoever with communication with Mars. There's no way this evolved concurrently completely out of the galactic depths. And as it was put simply by a military attache from the Terran courts uh, in his report, quote here, Zana is a gift simply too perfect to be trusted. It's either our greatest good fortune in these times of war, or it is a serpent lying in wait to slay us. My mind perceives the former, but my soul warns the latter. So, this is not helped at all by how vague and cordial, but very off-putting the Zanites are when they're questioned over their origins, over their activities, over their forge veins. And uh, they reference vague wars, Xenos incursions, uh, different privations of solar storms uh, for their missing and incoherent records for their own history. Uh, and their massive military capacity, they try to hand wave away as reactions to Xenos incursions. So the ambassador from Mars, of course, demands full access to the planetary archives and all of the um, individual forge fanes, data vaults, and they're just flatly denied. It's not even a possibility. Um, consistent negotiations at this time are still going on for admittance into the Imperium. And while the uh, lords of the Synod of Zana do maintain that they wish to join the Imperium, they play many of these things off as a... Um, they don't wish to capitulate prematurely. They don't just want to give up their sovereignty. They don't want to become another you know, checkmark in the conquering of the galaxy. So they don't desire war, but they don't want to submit to what they see as enslavement without knowing every detail, without... You know, having their firm place in the Imperium where they won't just be subsumed. So constantly calculations are being run during these negotiations from the Imperium. They are trying to come up with a plan B if Zana does not want to accept compliance. And the calculations they come back with are not reassuring. So Zana is massive, almost as powerful as Mars itself. Um, very conservatively speaking, it would be the work of an entire Space Marine Legio, which, you know, on the low end of things, um, 
an entire Space Marine Legio, preferably more, uh, backed up with full-on Titan, uh, multiple Titan Legios, and just hundreds of thousands into the millions of auxiliary and support troops. And as they run these calculations, they realize more and more how unrealistic this is. This is about four, almost five decades into the Great Crusade. This is not the stockpile of resources the Imperium has to spend right now. And as they're um, pushing through the Great Crusade, uh, the wars they're already starting will later be, you know, cataloged as the Rangdan genocides. And it's basically the greatest threat of the Imperium's first century of existence. And so while the genocides are going on, there is no way they have these resources to try and conquer Zana, at which point they would be left with a more or less non-functional forge world to begin with. So um, under kind of consistent subtle threats from the Imperium uh, delivered via the ambassadors of Terra to the lords of Zana, they finally develop what they call uh, a treaty of compliance. Uh, and in this, Zana maintains its sovereignty as part of the greater Imperium, while vaguely and notionally falling under the rule of Mars. So the deal is their affairs and secrets largely remain their own. They maintain their sovereignty as long as they obey the restrictions on technological development imposed by Mars. So things like no sentient intelligence, etc. So in return, Zana and its forges will now develop arms for the Great Crusade. They will arm the Great Crusade as a whole, serve as a port for its ships, and the Imperium would feed Zana raw materials, fresh blood, and schematics to enable this. So the accord was agreed, sealed, ratified by Zana and the Emperor's own writ, despite the fact that nobody on either side of this is really 100% comfortable with it, uh, least of all the Fabricator General. So I feel like this, and I, listeners, don't take me wrong, I will never miss a chance to explain why the Emperor is bad at his job. However, I think this is one of the highlights of that. Uh, right up there with not understanding how, uh, trying to turn... 18 demigods eventually against one another, and eh, it'll work itself out. I'm sure we can just sweep whatever's left under the rug. Uh, this is one of those things where it boggles my mind how he did not understand this was going to bite him straight in the ass. So, despite rushing through this alliance, uh, the Titans of Legio Zana now... Uh, kind of divided into two different legios, uh, both of which you've probably heard of, uh, Voltorum, known as the Gore Crows, and Kaidanos, known as the Death Cry, both unarguably badass. Uh, they leave the world along with this massive void ship armada, scores upon scores of cybernetica cohorts, and all of these forces, the bulk of Zana's military might are hurled straight into the Rangdan genocides. So, arguably, this could be 
what you could loosely describe as forethought on the part of the emperor. Maybe his idea was he did see this as a potential rival or a potential ally for Mars that could unseat that uneasy Treaty of Olympus. And he was trying to bleed some of their excessive power off of them. But it doesn't go quite as he had hoped, if that is the case. Um, in the Rangdan campaign, these reinforcements are absolutely direly needed. And the Zanite forces do a massive service to the Rangdan campaign as a whole. This is two whole Titan legios. And while they do terrific things for the campaign, they're essentially, after the xenocides, they have only sort of shells of what they sent out. While they earn massive honor and accolades for the, from the Imperium for their home forge, um, for their accomplishments, and almost more importantly, the weapons and armor pouring from Zana are being shipped directly into the front battle lines of the war, segmentum-wide. And this is slowly pushing the what was, in all possibility, straight defeat um, from defeat to stalemate and into eventual grinding victory. Um, it's easily arguable Zana was the reason the Imperium came out on top in the Xenocides, but this is a victory Zana is basically bled white to achieve. Now, Zana is still a powerful sovereign forge world, even into the later years of the Great Crusade. Um, it's still technically independent from direct authority of both Mars and Terra, and it is not by absolute adherence to that treaty from which they entered the Imperium. It's also fantastically far from the Segmentum Solar. And when you're that far out on the fringes, it's much harder to regulate. Now, of course, rumors are constantly going on from every angle over, uh, you know, hidden operations, deep and creepy secrets, as they are wont to do, just terrible techno-heresies. Um, from the operating tech priests that have been sent out as auxiliary and support to some of the other Imperium's forces. But the problem this is creating, it's pushing that distance of this powerful forge world farther and farther away between the Mechanicum of Zana and those of other forge worlds. Even as the Great Crusade is happening, Zana is getting pushed farther and farther away from some of their, you know, uh, some of what would have been their peers. However, when you compare it to different practices that were openly, you know, in full swing uh, compared to something like the Red Shock on Serum, if you guys remember way, way back uh, to our coverage on those guys, uh, these are something, these are things that are comparatively low-key on Zana. So, after Horus rises to power after Ulanor, Zana's kind of still, it's not nearly as powerful as it was, but it's still a powerful forge, and it's almost legendary in the Imperium now as 
kind of grown to encompass this sort of weird myth still way out on the Western fringes. But even as the Imperium grows to encompass the known galaxy, it's still a forge whose Magi keep no counsel of their own. And Mars has gotten no closer to solving that paradox of Zana. So here's where I'm going to leave it and turn it over to Dave. Thanks, Jason. That was like an awesome deep dive, man. Um, it's just so much goodness leading up to uh, where we are. So we haven't even gotten to the Xana incursion yet, right, guys? We've just been talking about sort of the background of how the Great Crusade came into contact with the Xana and then how it was sort of able to withstand the, the sort of the machinations of the emperor and Malkador and remain sovereign, um, even despite, you know, the power, obviously the power of the great crusade and the Imperium. Um, so Jason talked about the Rangdon Xenocide, right? And the Rangdon Xenocide is such a critical part of the, of, of the great crusade. And it's such a critical part of the Horus heresy. Um, the Rangdon Xenocide has been mentioned in every single black book, right? So from betrayal on through malevolence, um, there's been a mention of the Rangdon Xenocide. And I've been thinking about this a lot, right? And it's, so it's not just that the emperor is a, a tyrant, right? Because, I mean, obviously he is. Right. He is he's he's a he is a dictator and a tyrant in the classic sense, but there has to be more than that, right? To unify humanity against sort of the darkness in the night. And I think more than anything else, the Rangdon play this role of this this existential threat to humanity, this unifying force in the galaxy, right? Because this is before we really understand um, chaos and demons and the threat that lies beyond the veil, right? So this is, this is very much a physical existential threat to uh, the species and survival. And so really it gives the emperor that credence, that ability to mobilize vast war stocks and um, I mean the expeditionary fleets and crusades and the legionis astartes and everything else. So the Rangdon xenocides, it's important. I think it's important for people to understand um, from a historical perspective as well. So it, I mean, Xana certainly contributed um, to uh, fairly large Titan legios, right? Kaidonis or Kaidanus and Volturum. Um, but there were other legios that participated in the Rangdo xenocides, and we know that. And Graphonicus was one for sure that bled their strength in the Rangdon xenocides. And uh, there were potentially dozens of legios that just were wiped out um, in the Rangdon xenocides that will maybe never know about. But I, what I want sort of the listeners to know, because, I mean, I keep hearing, you know, sort of 
Rangdon Xenocide, and and uh, it's it's a big part of the lore. But I think it's hard for us to place in context. So what I wanted to do here is just run through a very cursory, quick timeline of the Rangdon Xenocides, so you guys can put it in context to both the Great Crusade and the Horus Heresy. So the first wars um, against the Rangdon, and the Rangdon are Serbivores. They're um, just sort of like they're mind eaters, right? Um, they also have a massively psychic potential, um, and uh, and they're they're a threat to the Imperium for sure. So the first wars began in in the eight sixties M thirty. Um, they were invading the frontiers of the early Imperium, so the nascent Imperium. So as the sort of the expeditionary fleets in the Great Crusade um, launched out from. Terra and the Segmentum Solar, they they immediately started to encounter the Rangdon in the galactic north and the east. And so the Rangdon inf inflicted um, severe losses on the Imperium on a scale that really wouldn't be seen again until the Horus Heresy. So that was sort of the first encounter. Now, so this, there was a second campaign against the Rangdon um, in 881 M30. And there was an incident that was known as the Majin Torque transgression. Um, I won't go into a lot of it, but the Imperium tried to blockade the Northeast um, against the Rangdon. The Death Guard were mobilized, and um, there was some crazy shit that went down. So this is all in, in the Horus Heresy Black Book. This is all in malevolence, right? So they're continuing to sort of write the timeline on this, which I think this is, uh, is really, really cool. Um, and then sort of the stage of conflict that we're in right now, um, so immediately leading up to like the Great Crusade, what we're basically talking about, the most well-known stage of the conflict uh, is the third Rangdon Xenocide. So that that goes from about 890, um, probably right up until the the Horus Heresy. Um, and this is this is the campaign where the Dark Angels under Lionel Johnson really lead uh, the Imperium, and they suffer amazing casualties. Right, so they suffer on the on the order of fifty thousand Astartes, okay? Fifty thousand dark I this I had no idea. And I I mean I do this all the time. I read the black books, I study the lore. I had no idea that the Dark Angels suffered fifty thousand killed in action battle bro brothers against the Zangd uh the Rangdon um in eight ninety. And that actually brought them that brought their status from the largest legion. Um, so they were they were a larger legion than the ultra to uh, basically the second largest legion in the Horus Heresy um, after the Ultramarines. And that that's in that's in uh, book five. So if you guys want to go check that out, you know, fact check me. Um, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, the fucking Rangdon Xenocytes are they're crazy, man. And uh, I, I don't know. I just, uh, it makes me hope that one day, you know, instead of Eldar and Tau and, um, you know, um, what are the robot dudes? 
You have the mm-hmm. Tyranids and the yeah, we'll have Rangan. Just going through all the the different uh, Xeno forms that you can play, I guess. In in four in forty k, yeah. yeah. I but mean, should... there's there's so much out there that that GW can just reach into if they really wanted to. So, yeah, for sure. I'm still holding out that hopefully we'll see a Zote at some point. We sh- we have a Zote. Yeah, there's oh, one in, right, right. in uh, not Necromunda, but the uh, Blackstone. Blackstone, yeah. Like a... yeah, as soon as I said that, I thought about what about that goofy looking bastard from the Blackstone deal? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's fucking crazy. I want, I want more than one Zote. Come on, guys. Yeah. If we can have more than two squats, let's have more than one Zote. But here's the thing, though. Like, okay, sorry for the sidebar, listeners, but like, look at the size of that Zote. Now try and figure that in a 40k like game setting like is that considered part of a troop so like would you have five of them it's a giant model so like five of those guys is one one troop unit would be insane but i don't know no you'll 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 never play zotes in 40k you might you might get to play them in kill team you might get to play them in um i don't know some other small skirmish game but yeah that's uh, but that I mean, Blackstone Fortress, man. I mean, they've been they've been giving us so much goodness, um, that uh, who knows, you know, who knows where that goes. Uh, that goes through like a Man of Iron, and why uh, the well, I mean, it's pretty common knowledge that uh, what's his name, U R O two five, is a still remaining uh, Man of Iron from the Age of Dark Knight. But uh, <clears throat> have you guys uh, read the novel or not the novel? It's like a um, it's a very short story uh, called Man of Iron. Oh yeah, it's really creepy. Uh, like it's he messes with everybody. He does, but uh, kind of a big deal here. Uh, listeners, go check this short story out. Um, so small, well, massive, massive spoilers for uh, <laughs> you know. The lore setting at large, uh, kind of one of those like uh, you know things on the scale of you know accidentally disproving a deity with math. Uh, so U R zero two five has met uh, the emperor, and he is not the Omnissiah. Yeah, what? he he's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we know the emperor is not the Amasaya. I mean, yeah, I think I, I think we know that. But yeah. I feel no. like that's the that's only time shocking. that there's not that like back and forth with. Well, he could be from a certain point of view, right? No, but most definitely not. Most definitely but it's not. a big deal. It was a big deal for me. It is. It is. I wanted little. I wanted. I wanted the your zero. What is it? Three five two zero, five two five. I wanted him to be the sole survivor from the, uh, oh man, what was the failed attempt, the Martian Civil War? Oh, you know, yeah. Right. The little fucker that just wanders off into the distance. <laughs> right, but oh, we yeah. did, but then he becomes, he becomes the, um, he becomes like the antivirus. 
Yeah, right. Because uh, artificial sentience is anathema to uh, scrap code. Yeah, it is. It's a. It's a. Yeah, it's anathema to uh, to chaos and scrap code. But then, should we never find out what happens to that dude? Uh, we totally do. Oh no, um, do we? Yeah, uh, Cybernetica has a direct sequel that is in. Oh gosh. Um, I want to say it's Heralds of the Siege. The sequel is when he becomes the 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 anathema to the scrap. So I know there's two. There's two. There's the one where the 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 um, Raven Guard tech tech priest. Yeah. He go, he goes on the mission to assassinate whatever the her, the heretics are right on Mars. Runs into that Iron Warrior dude. Yep. Fails. Mm-hmm. You know, almost all of the. Um, Oh man, what the fuck is the name of those guys? The uh, Castellans. Yeah, and they have a there's a certain name that they're like their AI at that point. Um, but then, so the one little one little Castellan wanders off, gets found, becomes becomes the sort of the the antivirus um, <laughs> software, right? He's yeah. like he's like McAfee five point right? Um, like- Ironically, McAfee's. <laughs> technically malware anyways so <laughs> you would you would know that so um <laughs> so you give so give the listeners the the appropriate analogy then oh so no i i think he's you i mean you could call him any type of anti-malware but but not mcafee because because it's it's hot garbage it's fair oh is, is mcafee corrupted now okay shows how old fucking old i am man um but uh but yeah so so but then what happens to that little dude i have no idea so at the very end of that uh sequel story he's basically um oh god what was the uh ai's name uh the tabula myriad yes like that's what i was replicated yeah. himself into a titan and he has set his sights on like the scrap code production facility that is uh mount olympus Oh my god. That makes me want an AI Titan so bad, dude. Right? Yeah. If I don't get a Martian Civil War novel like farther in, it's really going to be upsetting. Yeah, like, I agree. Obviously, not the first Martian Civil War, but that would be great too. <laughs> Come on, GW. We believe in you. Don't gloss Give over me this shit. More Mechanicum stuff. Acknowledge the solar auxilia exists. Either one of those two, I'm happy with. <laughs> not asking a lot here, guys. We're not asking a lot. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that's uh, that's that's right. I forgot that he he did that. Yeah, pretty cool. Good, Good times. All right. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it for for lesson two um, and our sort of continued uh, deep dive into into Xana. So next next week, um, when you guys listen to this, or whenever you guys listen to this, lesson three, we will be going from Flashpoint to False War. Right, Pat. Yeah, so I I mean we ended it really nicely um kind of like right at the beginning of Flashpoint which was which listeners if you if you have your book 6 or if you have a copy somewhere um is right on page 62 that very first part. 
But I mean, it's it's going to be cool. It's going to be exciting. So, but I do believe Jason has some rules to go over with his rules section. So let's get into that. I do. I was going to try to segue all nice and neat with something about Solar Auxilia, and then I forgot how Forge World kind of overlooks them occasionally, and it made me sad. And I kind of forgot to segue politely. However, uh, that is what I would love to talk about with everyone for uh, the Esoterica tonight. And correct me if I'm wrong, Pat, but tonight is the first time we get to use our cool little new intro for that. That is correct. So let's let's go ahead and uh, magical segue into the Esoterica. Doodly doodly doo. Hidden within the pages of history, there is a lost archive of space crusades, rogue traders, and warlords from an age of darkness. Buried deep, a tomb where the weapons of these once great warriors still exist. Unearthed from the vaults of Moravec, this is Esoterica. Okay, now you can talk now. Okay, got it. I'm still getting these scene transitions down. I don't have, like, a star wipe to cue me, all right? Oh, don't worry. Most of the time, I just delete all your guys' audio and put in whatever I want, so it doesn't matter. I mean, that's fair. I feel like you do most of the work here. I just talk a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about some Solar Auxilia. Yeah, Solar Auxilia are near and dear to my heart. Like, I know, um, I think it's kind of interesting. Between the three of us, we have a lot of overlapping armies. You'll notice in our uh, charming little logo, all three of us are Thousand Sons because all three of us have a Thousand Sons army. Uh, Pat and I share Mechanicum. Dave and I share Solar Auxilia. So, and Solar Auxilia is something that's been a little upsetting for me and Dave for a little while now since the uh, FAQ and the Malkador deal we talked about last time. That's not what we're talking about tonight. Those are sad, sad Solar Auxilia rules. They make me and Dave sad because we need Malkadors to operate. And we kind of got dragged into that undertow with uh, fixing those, you know, hot fixing those squadron Astartes deals. But that's not what we're talking about tonight. Tonight, we're talking about the good Solar Auxilia rules. The Solar Auxilia rules that set them apart from both the Militia and the Legionis Astartes. So, uh, Solar Auxilia are another terrific way that you guys should check out to not play Space Marines. So, you want to check out Mechanicum, you want to check out Mortals, be it Militia, or these guys. So, Solar Auxilia are not just another Militia army. That's the first thing that I have noticed folks kind of tend to gravitate toward. while the Militia are terrific ways to play mortals in their own very customizable, uh, very wide-ranging, right? The Solar Auxilia are a little more concentrated. So, uh, at the top here, I love this little bit of flavor text. Uh, the tactics of the Solar Auxilia have long been formatted 
uh, on active defense, the expectation that in battle they are most likely to be outnumbered and under direct attack, with the basic response of drawing the enemy onto their gun to break upon their lines like waves against unyielding rocks. It is this that has won the Solar Auxilia their fierce battlefield reputation and has seen them survive on most hostile worlds where none save the Legionis Astartes might be expected to prevail, albeit often at great cost. Key to this is their ability to stand shoulder to shoulder and maintain volleys of disciplined fire with rapidity and accuracy regardless of what unholy terrors are boiling down upon them. This regimen and tactical doctrine is as unwavering as force. So, here's what makes the Solar Auxilia terrific. Uh, first off, disciplined fire. So models with a special rule can overwatch snapshots at Ballistic Skill 2 when using pistol, assault, and rapid-fire weapon. Basically, every weapon your infantry guys have is pistol, assault, or rapid-fire. From the LAS rifles and Volkite chargers of your line troops, to the Archaeotech pistol on your Legate. So, it's pretty great to be... It literally doubles the number of hits you get on Overwatch. So, this combines nicely with something like the Velatari, one of their mainline troop choices, who are equipped with Volkite chargers. Uh, they can also, for 25 points, take Shroud Bombs, which, if you remember back uh, to the last time we talked about defensive grenades, they're one of my favorite things because they cause a disorganized charge. Uh, they are a throwable blind weapon, which everyone knows is my favorite rule. Uh, but they also require a leadership check uh, for any unit that's not a demon, fearless, or a vehicle uh, in order to charge them. So that really combines nicely with this uh, ballistic skill to Overwatch. Uh, when you're suddenly taking twice as many Volkite Charger Shites to the face, uh, assaults become a little less attractive. And a single squad of Volkite Velatari, which are ballistic skill 4, by the way, same as the Space Marine, uh, for 10 guys with 10 Volkite Chargers and Shroud Bombs, it's only 150 points. It's barely more than a tactical squad while being markedly better. So, uh, next one that's terrific and super special, Close Formation Fighting. As long as at least two friendly models with a special rule are in base-to-base, -base, and everyone, except maybe the Ogrens have this rule, uh, in base-to-base -base contact during an assault, they fight at plus one weapon skill. So, this sounds small. It's a pretty big deal. It's real annoying. It's real annoying. <laughs> Especially if you're the person assaulting them with 20 fearless thralls and you have to sit there for about three turns. You would be surprised how long uh, three or four solar auxiliary guys can hold out against uh, all of those busted-ass thralls. It's a fun time for me. Pat, not so much. <laughs> Why? <laughs> so, that puts your baseline infantry up to weapon skill 4, same as in Astartes. Now, this is not terrific as an offensive deal. I can almost guarantee it's going to give you less of a return as an offensive ability as it is defensive. Because against Astartes, it's suddenly going to go from... Uh, 
let's see, it's suddenly going to go from 66% of their attacks hitting you to 50% of their attacks hitting you. And the less attacks you can take as a Toughness 3 model with 4-up armor, the better. Uh, it's your first line of defense against getting punched in the face. Uh, also, it combines nicely with things like the Household Guard. Uh, they are an upgraded version of the Velatari uh, that you can take if you have a Lord Marshal. So uh, that moves your Velatari up to an elite slot instead of a troop slot. And it gives them uh, weapon skill 4 and pairs nicely with preferred enemy infantry. So uh, they kind of support your Lord Marshal and... Uh, he supports them by bumping them up to leadership 10. So this means that uh, when they, you know, colloquially uh, hold hands in close combat, uh, they're up to weapon skill 5, which is better than Space Marines, and it's spectacular uh, because they can come with power axes for only 50 points for the entire squad, and it doesn't sound at first, like it would be as nasty as it is, because it's a weapon skill, most of the time it's going to be 5 model, uh, with strength 3 and a power axe, so uh, it's only strength 4 against space marines, but combine that with the fact they all have last pistols, so it's 2 attacks at minimum, and you have that preferred enemy infantry scooching the dice even farther in your direction. Because against baseline Astartes, you're going to be hitting on threes, re-rolling ones, wounding on fours, re-rolling ones, and ignoring their armor. So it comes out far, far further to the mortal side in combats like that than you would think. So, uh, next down, Discipline Command. So this is just a way of the Solar Auxilia regiments and how they adhere to this really strict chain of command. Uh, just kind of a sort of boring housekeeping rule. If your army contains a Lord Marshal, he must be your Warlord. If it contains no Lord Marshal but does contain a Legate Commander, one of these must be your Warlord. If your army contains neither a Lord Marshal or a Legate Commander but does contain one or more Tactical Command Sections, which is a neat little bodyguard-esque sort of rule that has its own little supply of officers, the uh, Strategos from one of those units is your Warlord. And lastly, hold the line. While a squad with this rule is within 12 inches of another squad from the same tertio, which is something we'll get into in a sec, which is itself not already falling back, it can re-roll any dice result of 6 against pinning and morale checks caused by attacks in the psychic or shooting phase. So, not in combat, but more or less everything else. Or, I guess... In the very unlikely event that you take a morale check in the movement phase. But something to keep in mind. So the way tertios work, it's a very interesting little paradigm that's unique to the solar auxilia. Each of your troop slots is taken up by an auxiliary tertio. So each tertio must contain at least one section and may contain up to two sections, thus tertio, three, as desired. Uh, the points cost for the tertio is equivalent to the combined cost of its sections. 
So sections are things like Laz Rifle section, 20 Kaz, Laz Rifles. Uh, a Velitaris Storm section, 10 guys, Volkite Chargers. We talked about them earlier. Uh, you also have these fun little support sections, which um, they do have the support section rule, which means you have to have either... Oh, no. Specifically, you have to have a Laz Rifle section in the Tertio first, then you can include up to two support sections. So the Auxilia Flamer section, terrific, especially in ZM. Uh, Ten guys, flamethrowers, 125 points. It's golden. Stack them deep. They're amazing. Pat wasn't a big fan of those either. I killed them anyways. You did. I would like to add, listeners, Ogren are very fun to kill. They are. They're really expensive. Um, that was my own dumb fault for not remembering that Mechanicum have heavy chain blades, key point, AP4, uh, versus Astartes heavy chain swords, same plus two strength, AP5. Very big difference with the Solar Auxilia because 95% of the army is uh, armor save four up. So that was my own dumb fault. I have no excuse because my first army and love is Mechanicum. But... The last thing I would love to touch on here is the Legate Commander. So Legate Commander is a small console level. Uh, so still three wounds, mind. Uh, weapon and Ballistic Skill, four. Uh, initiative, three. Two attacks. Leadership, nine. That's not what's fun. What's fun is the Lord Marshal. So... He has access to a few special little pieces of war gear that are terrific and infuriating for your opponent. So for 35 points to the Legate Commander's 45, you can upgrade to a Lord Marshal. So you gain an additional pip of initiative, you gain an additional attack, you gain leadership 10. So the Lord Marshal has access to an Archaeotech pistol, not so great. Paragon Blade, exceptional. Uh, you also have access, additionally, to the Grav Wave Generator. This is 10 points. Take it every single time. It is the funniest thing to ever exist. Um, on top of defensive grenades, on top of charging through terrain, on top of everything else, regardless of special rules, a um, Grav Wave Generator is terrific. Any model charging the bearer of the unit, uh, charging the bearer or of the unit they are with, suffers a penalty of d3 inches to their charge rolls, cumulative with any other modifiers, and cannot make Hammer of Wrath attacks this turn. It is worth every point ten times over when that big scary assault unit takes Volkite chargers or an entire Laz rifle section in the face and fails their charge by a couple inches because of this little guy. And then not only do they suffer that overwatch, but then you get to charge them. Now, um, we could talk about the Displacer Matrix too. That's not quite as fun. Uh, with the FAQ update, it's a little weird in how it operates. But it's essentially a 3-plus invulnerable save that... Um, if you roll a 1 for your armor, 
it will shoot you into the stratosphere to be redeployed via drop strike, um, via deep strike layer. So that's not exciting. What is exciting is several of the uh, rules for the Lord Marshal. So um, high command is spectacular. As long as a model with a special rule is on the table, including in a transport in a ground vehicle or inside a friendly fortification, key point, it calls that out, uh, and not falling back or engaged in assault, all friendly units from the same detachment may use this model's leadership value rather than their own. So your solar auxilia las rifle section uh, or your ogrens with leadership six your LAS rifle section with a general leadership of seven, they are now leadership 10 when your Lord Marshal swings his big dick onto the table. That is enough to make Space Marines a little jealous because even most of their console options, leadership nine. Not this guy, now his entire army, including the Ogren or leadership 10. So, right? It's spectacular. That would have saved you last game, by the way. Yeah, it would have. It was, it was kind of rough. I forgot Ogren actually get the benefit, too. But it yeah. literally says all friendly units from the same detachment. Everything. Wow. It's good stuff. And the second one... So, they do have the household retinue world, which I explained earlier... Uh, with a Lord Marshal as this Warlord, you can upgrade a Velatara Storm section. Uh, their weapon skill 4, they lose the Hold the Line special rule. They have preferred enemy infantry. And they're Elite's choices, not Troop's choices. They can also take a Dracosin or an Arvis Lighter's dedicated transport. Now, the last one, the fun one. The one that not even Astartes get is Forged in War. A model with a special rule can select rather than roll for its Warlord trait using the tables it's normally eligible for. So that is the Solar Auxilia Warlord trait or any of those rulebook traits. Astartes can't do that. Custodes can do that, but, I mean, who cares? They get, like, you know, patted on the butt by Jetpack Mom on the regular. These mortals make it happen, and they do it by themselves. So the best thing that I love to do with... Uh, that sort of deal, is build a nasty little uh, Lord Marshal with a Paragon Blade. He's got his Artificer Armor. He's got his three up and vulnerable from an Iron Halo and a Cyber Familiar. He's in with a little pack of Velatari with Power Axes, and now he has Uncanny Survivor. Warlord gains Eternal Warrior. And short of... A salamander praetor with that uh, goofy scale of the eternal drake or whatever that gives him. Chances are you can give a much higher pointed space marine praetor a really rough time. And whenever you can remind space marines who the real champs of the galaxy are, it's always a good time. So with that, Pat has been my discussion of the fun rules of the Solar Auxilia. Yeah, play more Solar Auxilia, guys, and consider writing a letter to Forge World about the poor, poor Malkador. 
or it, just ignore it. I mean, or yeah, just ignore it. Play play house rules. I mean, it worked with Melta bombs when Games Workshop came out and said, "No, you can only use one grenade per assault." Everybody was okay with just saying, "Like, well, not everybody, everybody, but a vast Most majority." people were good. We're okay with just saying, "No, that's stupid. That's not how it should work." So, go out there, guys. Try calling it a Malkador Primaris or whatever. Add twenty points. And it's a super heavy again. Boom. But only for solar auxilia. Because it's okay sometimes that space marines don't get everything. It's okay. I've tried it. It works. Nobody died. Nobody caught fire. God, it think works fine. Space marines got photon thrusters. I mean, they do occasionally. Well, you I mean, yeah, them. if you take a Pravian with, with some Castellax, but like. Yeah, but they're basically on loan by the good graces of the Mechanicum anyway. Right. Never forget that, Space Marines. The Mechanicum made you and everything you wear. Right. Respect your elders. Um, <laughs> but I think that's it for us, listeners. Um, I guess we'll go, for us. we'll go right into plugs. Uh, Jason, you got anything? Uh, I don't have a lot of plugs. I have a cat. But... Oh, well, there you go. Cats are always good. Yeah, I'm a big fan. Um, I'm gonna quickly just plug a Patreon. Uh, if you if you really enjoy our episodes, if you like, if you kind of want to get to them early, uh, most of the time or for all of these series episodes, we release them one week early to our all our patrons, and um, we're gonna start offering a syllabus for for these big series. Uh, so there is a syllabus right now out there for our Zana coverage um and you get it if you're a patron and real quick wanted to thank uh dave sampson of uh black label painting for patroning to us you know love his work i know uh dave has a bunch of his wonderful pieces both as knights and i think uh titans too right so thanks dave and uh i think that's it for us and uh so I guess we'll clear it. we'll close it out and just say uh fuck off Craig. Da, 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 da. Fuck Craig. <laughs>